All right. Do I have a volunteer who is willing to open in prayer with us? Then, if not, Curtis, can I be so bold as to ask you? Sure. Amen. All right, so we are on chapter 8. We just kind of wrapped up um, section 5 last week, and we are going to move into uh, chapter 6 this week. Um, Is there anything left from chapter 5? Any loose discussions, anything to discuss there? I do notice we never did get through Romans 3. Uh, 25 and 26, so maybe why don't we just look at that as we wrap that up, and so we can kind of segue into this morning here. So, page 25, chapter 8, section 5, and it says that the Lord Jesus has fully satisfied the justice of God, obtained reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the Father. He has accomplished these things by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he once for all offered up to God through the eternal spirit. And does someone want to read Romans 3, 25, and 26 just to cap that section off? Keith, go ahead. And maybe start a bit earlier because verse 25 picks up mid-sentence. Maybe start at the sentence right before 23. Okay, here's an interesting thing, Um, I use the ESV, I'm guessing probably many of us do, who has another word other than propitiation in verse 25? No, maybe everyone's got propitiation, what does propitiation mean? Good for all, all? yep. Yeah, and it it conveys the sense of God's wrath being fully spent, right? It's completely satisfied. Whereas there's another word that's similar, but not exactly the same, called expiation, which means what? Just to send it somewhere else, okay? Just to send it somewhere else, to redirect it or... um, or to delay judgment. But propitiation means God is once for all satisfied. Um, and, and it's an important word. Many, And it's a word that actually is in our old vocabulary as evangelicals and fell out of favor. Um, and so the ESV has moved back to more classical language like propitiation. But a lot of them talk about... Uh, more modern English translations about sacrifice or stuff like that. And, and that's not a bad translation, but it doesn't really convey the full sense um, 
and the objection when uh, when the ESV team was putting it together, the objection to propitiation was that it sounds like bloody religion, to which they said, yes, correct. That's why we're putting it back in. <laughs> That's why it's important that this word is there. And so it's an important word. God's wrath is fully spent. It is fully satisfied by Christ with no remainder. Okay. Are we good to leave that off there and move into chapter 6? Yep. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so in verse 25 there, instead of propitiation by his blood, it says... A, what did it say? A sacrifice? An atonement. Okay. Yep. And that is correct. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but the word propitiation is a word that is making a comeback, and I think helpfully so, because it conveys, it does convey an atonement in blood, an atoning sacrifice. That is true. Um, but an atoning sacrifice can be used in the sense of expiation, just symbolically put it on a lamb and send the lamb out, or send a goat out into the desert. Okay, that, the, the symbolic laying on of sin onto that goat and sending it out into the desert is a typological symbol, but it didn't actually forgive anyone's sins. Right? It's symbolically pointing them to Jesus. So it's just kind of God delaying judgment or setting it aside or symbolically putting it on something, but his wrath isn't actually spent. That goat is just there to help the people understand what God is doing. Whereas propitiation says, now the substance has come. Now God has fully spent all his anger. All his wrath is spent fully. It's not just set aside and waiting, right? Um, and so I like the word propitiation, not because other translations are wrong, but because it symbolizes that once for all, fully spent, fully finished, nothing more left to do. Whereas expiation is kind of more looking at anticipation, right? It, it's symbolically dealt with, um, and that can convey it either way. So I'm not trying to nitpick. I'm just saying I, I think there's fullness in a word like propitiation. I think there's value in it. Anything else on that? Okay, then let's move on. Chapter 6, or chapter, chapter 8, section 6. The price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation. Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit of it was imparted to the elect in every age since the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices that revealed him and pointed to him as the seed that would bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so that's maybe a good segue from what we were just discussing there. Okay, so the Old Testament saints were saved how? By faith, yeah, yeah. And in a sense, we can say on credit, right? They were drawing on the line of credit before anyone put money in the account. So it, it was there to use. It's on the basis of Christ's atoning work, 
but the payment was actually not made until Christ was incarnated as a man and died and rose again for our sins. Okay? So let's break this into pieces again. Let's go up to note 34. The price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue efficacy and benefit of it was imparted to the elect in every age since the beginning of the world in and by those promises types and sacrifices that revealed him and pointed to him as the seed that would bruise the serpent's head and let's look at these who wants to take first corinthians 4 verse 10 brooklyn who wants to take hebrews 4 2 jolin who wants to take 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11? Tyson. Revelation 13, 8. Tim. And Hebrews 13, 8. Kenan. Okay, so let's work through these. 1 Corinthians 14, 10. Sorry, 4 verse 10. My bad. Okay, wise in Christ, and that's an important theme, in Christ, what does it mean to be in Christ? Hebrews 4, 2 and 1, or 2, who had that? Okay. Okay. So a couple things there. The good news came to us just as it came to them. Okay, and let's back up a little bit. Let's include verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them. Who's them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's looking back, right? Yep. The author of Hebrews is looking back. By the way, who is the author of Hebrews? Nobody knows. Yeah. But it's looking back. It's looking back. And it says that the gospel was preached to them. So is there a shift in substance between old and new? Or is, is, it, is it a completely different program or is it promise and fulfillment? Or is it here was one way of salvation, now I don't like it anymore, so now it's the new way of salvation? Which one is it? Okay, yes. Did everyone hear Tim? Same program, but the lights are on. Now we can see it more clearly, right? We see it more fully. But this is the same gospel... That was delivered to Adam and Eve. This is the same gospel that saved Noah. This is the same gospel that saved Abram, that saved Moses, that saved David. It's the same gospel. They had it in parts. They had it in promise. We have it in substance. So it's the same gospel. And many did not receive it then, as we know, right? 
But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith in those who listened, with those who listened. Okay? So does just hearing the gospel or being around it save you? No. But wait a minute. My last name is Plett, and that's literally a low German last name, so I'm good, right? What? What? <laughs> right? And, and how often do we do this? Right? I was baptized into the Church of Scotland. I'm good. No, I grew up Anglican. I'm good. No. Right? I'm Dutch. I'm Swiss. I'm whatever. I, I, I was born in the church, so I must be good to go. Right? And even people who formally really reject that, it tends to creep up on time. Right? Grandpa was a Christian, therefore I must be. Uh, and that is false. That is false. Even as we see uh, more and more in the, in the New Testament, not all of Israel are Israel. Right? And some who are not ethnically Israel are Israel. What's the difference? It's not ethnicity. It's not circumcision. It's what? What's the dividing line? Faith. Faith is the dividing line. Are you trusting these promises? Right? The little girls that watched their dad sacrifice a lamb year after year after year and said, Daddy, what does this mean? Some of those little girls understood and internalized it and trusted in those promises, and some were just going through the rituals. Right? Some were just going through the motions. And there was never a faith that grabbed onto it. And it's always easy for us to kick on the Old Testament saints, but we've been given more light, and how much do we do the same exact thing? We're surrounded by it, we learn it, and we just show up on Sunday morning because that's what we've done, right? That's just part of the pattern of our life is to show up in church on Sunday morning. And if that's just the pattern of your life, I'm glad you're here, but that's not going to do it. It's not going to cut it, right? It, it needs to be resting in faith. Anything on that? Are we still in danger of what it's easy for us to criticize ancient people for doing? Or have we figured this out and we're not guilty of this sin anymore? No, it's quiet. It means either we're quite guilty or I ask the question poorly. Are we still guilty of watching these things happening around us, thinking that we're good and not putting true saving faith in the object? Is this still a problem? Yep. Pete. All right. Well, we trust God loves you. <laughs> and we're glad you're here. Yep. But isn't that the way it works, right? Our, yeah, our traditions take over. And then you get to the kind of the non-denominational kind of evangelical and they don't have a tradition because that's their historic position 
We don't do tradition. It's our historic position. We've never done tradition for the last 150 years, and we're not about to start with traditions now. Also, don't change anything about how we do Sunday morning because we're really comfortable with the way we've done it for the last 30 years, rejecting tradition the way we have. Okay? So reject tradition exactly like us or else. Right? So tradition is good. Traditionalism is deadly. Okay? There's a, a church historian from, I don't know where, Eastern Europe somewhere, Yaroslav Pelikan, and he talks... Uh, it's a great little quote. It says, yeah, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Okay? So I will be here and I will say tradition is good. Tradition is good. It's the guardrail. It serves us. Creeds are good. Confessions are good. They help us. They keep us connected to what God's been doing through the whole story of the church. Traditionalism doing it just because that's the way we've done it. That's deadly. That's the dead faith of the living. Okay, So living, breathing people can be dead spiritually due to traditionalism, but Athanasius and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Knox and Spurgeon, their tradition is alive today. Their orthodoxy, their, their living faith is alive today uh, through healthy traditions. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Marina. Okay, so Mennonite history is very interesting. Um, because, where do I start? <laughs> yes. So the very earliest roots of the Anabaptist movement were three Swiss guys, Mons, Grable, and Blaurock. You've maybe heard the story. And they came to believe, so keep in mind, in the Reformation, for the first hundred years or so, 200 years, everybody agreed on infant baptism. Okay? So if you were Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, everyone practiced infant baptism. That was just, nobody challenged that idea. They all had their various ways of getting there. But it was agreed upon um, that we keep baptizing babies for whatever reason. And so when that idea first came to be challenged, that we should baptize, wait until profession of faith to baptize, that was a new idea. And I would say the idea is is biblical. It's fine. It's good. Um, But they became known as Anabaptists because they had received infant baptism and now they were being baptized again on profession of faith. Anabaptist means to be baptized again. Um, and what happened after that was really interesting because some of the English Baptists, so some of the English Puritans were in contact with some of the guys in Switzerland and Netherlands and stuff, and they took the idea of believer's baptism back with them and they started to discuss it. And one of the, that's why we've got one of these, which is the Westminster Confession of Faith The Savoy Declaration, the only thing they've changed here is believer's baptism. But they very much wanted to be in union. And if you read the preamble to this document, we love our Presbyterian brothers. We love our Anglican brothers. We're not trying to do something different. We're just making one (laughs) change here in how we understand this. But they very self-consciously wanted to be part of the same broad tradition of the church. They didn't want to be radicals or revolutionaries. It did take a different direction 
in Switzerland and in the Netherlands. It became very radical. Okay, so if infant baptism is out, everything's out. And some of the earliest Anabaptists had, they were revolutionaries in the true sense of the word. They were not stable. Uh, We want to continue on in the broad tradition of the church. It got so radical. um, And if you are a liberal Anabaptist, you embrace this. That the the, the Anabaptists were called the radical reformers or the left wing of the Reformation. They were true revolutionaries uh, in that they came to dislike everything that was in the church. So instead of Reformation, which is the main project that was happening in Europe, uh, the radical reformer said, it's all garbage. We're starting from scratch. We're going to burn everything to the ground and start from scratch. Um, and the other reformers were extremely scared of that project. If you want to see, Luther spares, he says nothing nice about the Anabaptists. <laughs> okay? uh, and it's interesting hearing Mennonites, oh yeah, well, when Menno Simons and Martin Luther were working, our men- no. <laughs> no. Uh, the Lutheran Confession talks about Atheists, anarchists, and Anabaptists is all being essentially the same group of people. Um, And there's historical reason why I don't think that's an overstatement. It got very radical, and some of these guys started to say there was no church on earth. There was individual Christians, but until the Anabaptist wing of the Reformation, the church had disappeared. So you have a church in Acts 28, it gets instantly corrupted, and the Anabaptists restore uh, and we have restorationist reminders of that. Like the Church of God in Sardo is a restorationist church. There was no church on earth until their prophet came in the mid-1800s. Okay, that's what restorationist churches or, or kind of radical revolutionary approaches do. Um, and the Anabaptists got involved in some very bad stuff um, in rejecting tradition in the wheels really did come off, and it, it kind of reached a fever pitch. Have you ever heard of the Munster Rebellion? Um, there was kind of end times fever that happened with uh, what was called the, the Zwickau prophets. So there was, a, of course, now that we're in this new age of the church, prophecy became active again. Uh, and so these Zwickau prophets started to get new revelation, and they, one of the first things that they heard was that they were right at the end of history now. Um, and an Anabaptist by the name of Melchior Huffman uh, was going to bring in uh, Christ's kingdom, uh, and he, he sieged a city in Germany called Münster, and, and he walled it off. And the Lutheran officials around him were just kind of watching, What's, this doesn't look like it's going anywhere good, but they kind of left it, left it alone, um, and they were just going to starve them out. And they did starve them out. And they resorted to cannibalism. And as men started to get eaten, the next word that Melchior Huffman got, and there was a, a, also a Jan Matisse and a Jan, uh, another Dutch name. I forget his name. Two Jans and Melchior. Uh, they got word that they were free to take all these women for themselves as well, which is interesting because it's a pretty straight line from bad theology to having sex with whoever you want. <laughs> but this is what happened. And Europe is just watching more and more concerned about Anabaptism, because that's what this was to them. Um, And finally, they took the city back. Um, Yeah, there's a whole 
bunch of stories that I won't go into that involve a scrotum getting nailed to a door. Um, history is interesting. <laughs> uh, and they, they finally took these three guys and put them in cages and hung them off the church steeple once this was all settled out. Okay, that's church history. Um, and Anabaptism got a very, very bad name, fairly or unfairly. In this case, it was certainly fair because this was Anabaptist theology, radical, revolutionary, you know, modern-day prophecy, weird stuff that was happening. Uh, um, and it did happen. And so the Lutherans never really forgave the Anabaptists for being radical, kind of liberal-type people. I don't think that's fair everywhere because in other places, believers' baptism was a standalone thing that fit perfectly well within the rest of evangelical theology. Uh, so you see kind of two streams. Uh, Menno Simon's brother Peter died in the Netherlands in one of these revolutionary millennial sieges that, uh, that they took a city by storm. And Menno's brother Peter died there in a, in a violent revolution. And that got Menno Simons to kind of examine his own life. Um, and historically, we can say he, he would have said he got it from the Bible, but historically the reason pacifism became such an important thing to him is because how violent this Anabaptist Reformation was getting in Europe because the wheels were completely off. Uh, and so Menno Simons was a maturing kind of father figure. He was the dad that the Anabaptists desperately needed. But even he speaks pretty poorly about the church fathers and creeds and confessions. He still has a little bit of that mindset that we are the Anabaptists, we are the only true ones, we're going our own way. Um, and the fixation on purity, it's been hard to shake that. There was you know, a, a church in um, Siberia where someone had walked in late uh, and the minister excommunicated him on the spot. And then a big ruckus broke out, and he excommunicated everybody. But then they had a membership meeting, and they excommunicated him. And then the joke was the only one who wasn't excommunicated in that church was the cat that was walking around. <laughs> okay. This is what happens when the wheels fall off, and there's not guardrails to, to protect you. I've mentioned too, Menno Simons made a, a grave mistake with his Christology, um, saying that Jesus wasn't really a human. Had he accepted Christianity up till that point and just reformed it rather than tear it all apart, he wouldn't have made that mistake. So some of these mistakes would have been prevented if they had stayed within the mainstream of kind of these biblical guardrails. Um, and that's why, so for some of us with a low German last name, doing stuff like saying a catechism question in church or working through a confession is weird. It seems weird to us. Because historically, a lot of these things have been intentionally sidetracked. The earlier Anabaptists didn't want to see themselves as part of the big church. Um, and, and, and I know it, some earlier, like let's say 50, 100 years ago, I know there were catechisms that were being used. Um, but in my life, that's never been... I've never, until we were here, I've never said a creed or gone through a catechism ever in my life.
that has been a later development that they have developed some of their own, for sure. Um, I'm talking now, let's go back 1600s. It was self-consciously rejected. Now, Mennonites have become more mainstream, certainly, with time. But there's still, well, and you could say this about anyone. You could say this about Lutherans. You could say it about Presbyterians, Anglicans, whatever. There's always a liberal version and a conservative version of everything, right? You meet some very conservative Lutheran people, uh, and you meet the rainbow Lutheran people. Do it for Presbyterians. Do it for Anglicans, right? You, within the Anglican church, you've got J.I. Packer and John Stott, you know, wonderful evangelical figures, and you've got the lesbian wearing her rainbow stole, bishop, right? That's Anglicanism. Well, that's, that's everyone. That's Mennonites too, right? You've got the very conservative people in Bolivia, and you've got the uber-liberal people on Sherbrooke, right? It, it, that, that, to a degree, is all of us. Um, but historically, the earliest roots of the Anabaptist movement, if you ever wonder why there was such tension in Europe with the Anabaptists, it's because they branded themselves as radicals, as revolutionaries. There's nothing in church history we want to keep. We're going to throw it all away. Um, and with time, they have, certainly it has become more mainstream. Like some of my grandpa's age would have grown up doing catechism. I've got his little catechism booklet. So it, it did become a part later on, but at, it, in the earliest roots, it was rejected. They were going to be the pure church, whereas all the other churches were bad churches. Um, and I'll, I'll maybe leave it there. And everyone, I, I love telling the story of the Munster Rebellion because no one who's done an Anabaptist history class has ever heard of it. <laughs> it's interesting. And I'll, I'll throw it. Who's heard of the Munster Uprising? Okay, good, good. So if you have, um, James White, if you ever want to hear a full story, it's a fascinating story. Um, James White does a two-part, uh, ends up being about two hours history of it. And, and the cannon, uh, they pull in some cannons. I'm not sure if they ever got used, but the, forget, the, even the cannons had colorful names. I forget, Big Satan and Little Satan or something. It was, <laughs> it was weird times. <laughs> So if anyone wants to go back to the good old days of 1500s Europe, don't romanticize it. it, uh, it they had their own problems back then. Um, so I will say, yeah, I, I will say that. Um, I'll leave it there. Menno Simons was the dad that the Anabaptists needed, and he significantly brought the, the temperature down, mainstreamed it to a large degree, got rid of some of the real revolutionary impulse um, and pastorally, you could say that's because his own brother died from being a revolutionary. Um, so it's, it's a complicated history, just like every branch of everyone's family and everyone's church is complicated. The Anabaptists didn't like the Lutherans very much either because they were not very nice to them. And Baptists in England were very frustrated because they got called Anabaptists. And they said, no, please, no, <laughs> no. We're Baptists. We're believers Baptists. We're, we're not wanting to associate with all that stuff that you're remembering from Germany. This is something different. And that's why if you read these documents, you, you could say it's plagiarism that they just took the Savoy Declaration and the Westminster Confession. But it's, it wasn't plagiarism because they credited it. And they said they were desperate to show we have the same... <laughs> the same doctrine other than on baptism. We disagree with how to do baptism. 
but on everything else, we are fully connected to the other churches in, in England and Europe. Um, and so if you ever wonder, well, why, you know, why make it almost word for word the Westminster Confession? That's why. They really were averse to being radical or revolutionary. They wanted to, to carry on. Anything else on that? One thing I love about Sunday school is that you never know where it's going to go. I was not expecting Anabaptist history from this, but it's good, very good. Okay, oh, yeah. The zealots. Like in the New Testament zealots? Uh, how long did they last? Well, they started in the year 166 B.C., um, from the Maccabees, the Maccabean Revolt. That was another revolt movement. Um, when did the Zealots end? I, I don't know. You could say maybe they haven't yet. Well, there is a little bit of that there, right? Judas Maccabeus and his four boys, right? Anyone heard of the Maccabees? If you have an Apocrypha, there's a book of Maccabees in there. That's uh, it, Jacobus Maccabeus um, and his four boys in the year 166 B.C., were not liking the way Jerusalem was being handled, and so they also kind of incited a violent revolt uh, against the empire. Um, and actually, remarkably, with some success. Um, it's almost like the Confederates winning against a big army. It was, the odds were stacked against them, but they actually had some successes um, with a zeal for, for the Holy Land, with a zeal for Jerusalem. Um, and they're certainly still there when Jesus is there, so they certainly lasted 200 years. Um, and I suppose you could argue past that as well. Yep, Marina and then Elf. Of the, the zealots. That could be, if some historians have placed it there, I won't argue that. That could very well be. Yeah, I, I will admit I've never done a deep dive on the, on the zealots. That could very well be. Elf. Yeah, so it's, it's actually interesting. This is fascinating stuff, how history rhymes. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV came in, and he occupied Jerusalem. And who's heard of the abomination of desolation in the book of Daniel? Okay. Um, and then Jesus repeats it in Matthew 24, right? Let the reader understand the abomination of the desolation. Okay, so in, uh, when Antiochus Epiphanes took over Jerusalem, he did the unthinkable. And he had a pig butchered in the Jewish temple. Okay? If you are a Jew, nothing angers you more than your holiness code has just been violated in the most egregious way. And so Judas Maccabeus, uh, and Maccabeus means hammerer, so Judas the hammerer, And his four boys said, okay, this is worth civil war. This is worth armed resistance. Okay? Amazingly, fast forward about 200 years. Jesus uses that kind of language about the abomination of desolation in all of a discourse. Let the reader understand. Rome is doing about the same thing. And Vespasian is about to expand his empire and go into Jerusalem. And he sends his son Titus the general in there. Guess what Titus does? 
sacrifices a pig. Sacrifices a pig. Okay? 200 years apart, and largely the same event is, is happening. The temple is being desecrated in a disgusting way. Okay? This is the abomination uh, of desolation. And, this, uh, and so it's understandable, if this is your holiness code, this is such uh, an insult that I wouldn't say armed revolution is the answer, but it's understandable historically how people get to that point if the pressure's really on. And people make bad mistakes, um, almost being anti-revolutionary too, uh, to go back to medieval Europe. Luther was so disgusted by the Peasants' Revolt and by the Anabaptist Revolt, he was so disgusted by it that in about the year 1525 or so, Luther actually goes into a pretty dark place. He is so anti-revolutionary, and then he has two daughters who die, and he gets into a pretty dark place (laughs) for a little while. Um, And some people would say it's anti-Semitism. Some people would say it's not an ethnic uh, hatred, but it's a hatred against any kind of violent unbelief, against Jewish unbelief. Um, You can read Luther for yourself and see what he's railing against, if it's Jews as Jews or if it's Jews as unbelievers. Uh, But lots of mistakes get made when revolution comes to town. And so this is why I, I would say revolution is always sinful. <laughs> always. That's not the way we handle our problem, is with armed resistance. Reformation is what we want. Continue on, keep plotting, keep making changes, but armed revolution is a bad idea. It rarely, if ever, goes well. Violence tends not to be the answer. Anything else on History. He uses it. Yeah. He also uses adultery. <laughs> so just be careful. <laughs> but yes, he does use revolution. He does. He has. And I, I trust he will continue to. I would call it the war for independence. You chose well. I would not call it the revolutionary war because the revolutionaries were on the other side of the ocean. The Americans were not revolutionaries. They wanted to continue on with Protestant rule of law in their land. Um, And so I would say the American Revolution was not a revolution properly. They were the conservatives. The revolutionaries were in Great Britain. Um, By revolution, I just mean a radical tearing apart of what has held society together. We're in the midst of an absolute death spasm revolution right now, and it has to do with sex, not with national boundaries. But the French Revolution, uh, you know, some of this philosophy that was happening during the so-called Enlightenment, everything, all things got thrown off by the late 1700s. And again, echoes, how does history rhyme? Uh, Do you know that they quit calling each other by gendered names? You were a citizen. Because the organizing factor in 1700s France was no longer the church or your family. It was that you were French. Okay? The state was God. And in Notre Dame Chapel, they took a prostitute and they put her on the altar. They named her Sophia, Wisdom. They put her on the altar and this was the new religion of France. The old ways are gone. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Uh, It was 
uh, it was a terrible time in revolutionary France. And even the seven-day calendar offended them because that was a reminder of what? Six-day creation. They hated it. The French did a 10-day week that lasted about 14 years. They hated God so much. The white-hot hatred of God was so hot in revolutionary France, they had to change the week. And you became a citizen rather than a man or a woman in the image of God. Sex was free as it is now. It was revolutionary times. It was time of upheaval. And gloriously, and this is where I will agree with Alfred, the people who stir revolution almost always get beheaded by it. And so the greatest part of the revolution in France was when Maximilian Robespierre got put in his own guillotine, his own invention, because you couldn't behead people fast enough in revolutionary France the old way. So they invented a device that you could just expedite beheadings. And the glorious thing is he got executed by his own invention. That's how revolution works. It devours itself. It's like a snake that starts grabbing a hold of itself by the tail and just chokes the life out of itself. We are in such a time. The sexual revolution is such a time. All the old ways, all the old paths have been forgotten. We've torn down all the old fences that kept us safe. Uh, and, and we are devouring ourselves. And the, the, one of the most glorious parts now is watching feminists argue about whether transgenderism is pro or contra feminism. It's glorious to watch. Feminists devour themselves. So I, I don't think we'll change it fast. The best you can do is get some popcorn and enjoy it. And... And raise your kids in Christian faith knowing that stupidity never works in the long run. It never does. So our job is the same. Be faithful. Raise faithful children. Teach them the word of God. Work hard. We win. You, you can't win with revolution. Keenan. Yes. Yep. Very good examples. Did everyone hear Keenan? There's biblical examples of people being devoured by their own revolution as well, right? Remember Haman and his gallows? He invents something to kill someone else and it ends up killing him. This is how God does it. And I don't think he's done working that way in history yet. The sexual revolution will kill itself. Feminism will devour itself. It has to. There's just no, there's just no other way. Um, but the, the mandate for God's people is always the same. Be like the sons of Issachar. Understand the times you're living in. And our marching orders haven't changed. Love your wife, work hard, raise faithful children, and leave history up to God. Okay? But faithful Christian families win. Okay? Faithful Christian churches win. It, it looks pretty dark sometimes. If you're in 1793 in France, it's going to look pretty dark. But that revolution eventually spent itself. BLM riots eventually spend themselves. The Russian Revolution spends itself. Um, bad ideas tend to do that. And that's what happens. So if I told you that, I still agree with that. 
right? The revolutionaries say, what do we want? Revolution. When do we want it? Now. And Christians, what do we want? Reformation. When do we want it? Incrementally. (laughs) And according to the word of God. Slowly, over time. Okay? That's what we want. Okay? We can let the Beatles sing about wanting a revolution. Okay? That's not Christian stuff. (laughs) That's maybe where they got their... <laughs> Lots of people want to get back to the USSR. And that's also a bad idea. All right. Having discussed almost nothing about chapter 8, <laughs> verse 6, and having gone entirely into history, I think we'll bring it in for landing. Anything, anything on this? We'll pick it up where we are. And I'll throw this out. Are these rabbit trails helpful and useful, or are they distracting? Do I need to rein it in a little more so we stay on track? Or I'm curious, leading the conversation. Okay. So it's okay to talk about the USSR and the French Revolution? Okay, good. Studying history is very encouraging, actually. For me, it is. It makes me more brave, it makes me more courageous, and it, for me, fixes despair. Because it's been... I always say, you know, cheer up. It's way worse than you think. And it's been way worse than we thought. So cheer up. (laughs) It's always been an unwinnable battle. And God always wins. So nothing to fear. Okay, that's a good point. Um, So Jalyn's asking about pacifism and being anti-revolution. Well, anti-revolutionary? Yeah, okay. Okay, so I think, personally, I think all Christians should be anti-revolutionary. Because revolution destroys everything in its path. It, it removes all norms. Lots of blood gets spilt unnecessarily. Uh, and so some would handle that by saying Christians should be pacifists. Right? So essentially, there's never a correct moment for Christians to take up arms, okay? And that's understandable, and that's a position that some have taken in the church, would be pacifism. Uh, Another view in the church, which has been the predominant one, has been what's called just war theory, which is to say uh, if war, if violence was always necessarily bad, God wouldn't have commanded it in the Old Testament. Uh, And if you read closely, you'll notice actually that the apostles practiced open carry, Right? When Peter cut off Melchus' servant's ear, he puts his sword back in his scabbard. Okay, so this isn't a little dagger meant for opening letters and cutting apples. He's got a scabbard. Okay. Jesus ran with guys who practiced open carry. So do with that what you will. I am not a pacifist. I am an anti-revolutionary. That I am. Um, I don't think the Bible forces us into pacifism. I think there is a time and a place where force is justifiable. But in Christian just war theory, which comes actually largely from, forget now if it's Leviticus or Deuteronomy, chapter 20 or 25, I don't remember now. But there is essentially a chapter dedicated to just war theory. Um, and, and a few of the criteria are it has to be defensive. right? You don't go around the world starting to police other people's conflicts. It's defensive. If you get hit, you can defend yourself. Uh, it has to be declared by a legitimate authority, okay, so not a band of, you know, angry rednecks, 
and I love angry rednecks, but, but they, they don't have the, the lawful authority to declare war. So it has to be declared by uh, a legitimate authority, a civil authority. Um, and the chances of winning have to be in your favor uh, and quick. We don't want unnecessary collateral damage. People criticized the United States for getting into World War II so late because in the 1930s and 40s, the United States still worked with Christian just war theory, and they absolutely do not today. Today they love flying around and watching other people's problems. That's not Christian just war theory. Christian just war theory says if Pearl Harbor gets bombed, yes, now it's your problem. But your job is not to go police what's happening in Vietnam. Your job is not to go police what's happening in Iraq and Iran. If they can bomb your city, yes, you can go to Afghanistan. <laughs> but then we're done. <laughs> okay? um, so there's, there is a big gap between Christian just war theory and kind of revolutionary fever. Um, and, and so Christians have answered that two, two ways. Later on, the Mennonites obviously became pacifist. Uh, and as far as I know, they're the only group that is officially pacifist. You'll find pacifists in other Christian traditions. But as traditions, they basically hold to just war theory with pacifists in there. Does that answer the, the question? Yeah, okay. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, I think, I think there's things happening there that Jesus is warning them are going to happen shortly, that do happen shortly, and it's good for Christians to have a sword if you're in Jerusalem at certain times. Um, I think it certainly, at the bare minimum, the application for us is it's not wrong to own a weapon. It's not sinful to own a gun. We used a gun yesterday down in Sprague, and I don't think anyone was sinning. Um, I've never used a gun on a person, and I hope I never do. I don't ever want to even be in a position where I'd think about it. Um, but I, I don't think pacifism is a necessary consequence of Scripture. I understand how pacifists get there. I respect their tradition, but I, I, I personally am not there. I, I think there is a time and a place uh, for defense. I think it could in the sense of at least you can, at the very minimum, if it was sinful to own a weapon, Jesus wouldn't have instructed his followers to own a weapon. Right? He did, but not to get rid of it. It's not time, Peter. You might need this sword in a couple of years, but now's not the time. Now the Son of Man has to be thrown in. And this is why I talk lots about Christians knowing what time it is. We have to be just as careful exegetes of our time in history as we are of the Bible. So we know what time it is. Right? In Ecclesiastes, there's a time to mourn and a time to dance. Right? There's a time to kill and there's a time to make alive. Christian wisdom is knowing where you are in the story. Where are we? Peter jumped the plot. Okay? So, and that's why... I love history. I know we did a history rabbit trail this morning. I would say history is important for us to understand. 
One, to understand what God's people have gone through in history. Two, ancient history will help you understand your Bible better. Uh, And three, once you start to see how history works, it's easier and starts to become more natural where we are in the story. Okay? You'll become more courageous if you know what God's people have faced in the past. You'll have a better sense of proportion if you know what God's people have faced in the past and how God has worked. So I'll leave it there. Kids are coming back. It's high time we got to coffee. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for discussion this morning. I want to thank you that uh, what starts as discussion on one point can become uh, a wide-ranging interactive discussion on something different. Lord, and I pray that you would use that. I pray that you would uh, help us to understand your word, most importantly, better but also to help us understand history, to help us understand ideas, to help us understand where we currently are at in the story so we know how to obey and how to apply your word to our surroundings. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would take away anything that uh, was said in haste or that was unhelpful this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, as we think about history, we would even have more respect and more understanding for uh, traditions that are different than our own, to understand the circumstances in which... uh, they come out, and why people have moved into different uh, positions. Lord, and I pray most importantly that we would test everything by your word and that we would be unafraid to go where your word would have us go. pray for each one here this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give us a sense of courage, a sense of calm, knowing that we are in your creation. Uh, These are the days you have made for us, uh, and I pray that we would understand what's around us well and that we would understand your word well. Give us a sense of trust in you and your hand of providence, courage and trust in your word. pray this all in your strong and powerful name. Amen.